what does it look like when you're supposed to shelter at home and home is Nairi or you are homeless? I think one of the biggest things that COVID-19 did was really reduce the support structure for our, our participants. And they were not able to continue the, that engagement of love and friendship that they so sorely needed during such a, a dire time. And this really leads to an increase in depression, anxiety, and PTSD symptoms. Um, you know, many of our participants reported using more drugs in order to cope with these symptoms. You know, and that was a really unfortunate um, side effect of having to, having to close this. That was Dr. Brianna Norton, Medical Director of the New York Harm Reduction Educators, or NIRI, a syringe service program in East Harlem, New York. I'm Linda Wong, and I'm the Medical Director of the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence at the Institute of Advanced Medicine at Mount Sinai, part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative. I'm your host for this podcast series, Any Positive Change, focused on drug user health. In our first episode, we heard more generally about Nairi services and the impact of COVID on the program and the lives of its participants. Now we will take a deeper dive into the medical clinic at Nairi, what it offers and why it fills such an important gap in the lives of people who use drugs, especially when it comes to hepatitis C and opioid use disorder treatment with buprenorphine. To get the details, I spoke to both Brianna and her colleague, Christine Fitzsimmons, a registered nurse at Nairi. So, just to start, I was hoping you can tell me your name, role in the organization, and how long you've been working here. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor of medicine at Montefiore Medical Center, and I have been the clinical director of Nairi now uh, for probably... Um, for over five years. Um, and as my role as a clinical director was really to ensure that their HIV and Hep C testing program was uh, clinically appropriate, as well as um, ensure that their Narcan distribution was appropriate and had a clinician signature. And in working with the program, it became very clear to me that the participants um, who received a tremendous amount of services at the Syringe Exchange Program were not quite as adept at being referred out to clinical care at Montefiore Medical Center. Um, even we, though our community-based clinic was only really three subway stops from them, the participants had a lot of barriers into getting into care, despite having a lot of needs for healthcare. And so we, in partnership with Montefiore and Nairi, established a drug user health clinic at the drop-in center itself, which is on 126th Street and Lexington in East Harlem. Mm -hmm. We started that a little bit over a year ago, and we have been providing really drug user health care. And what I mean to say uh, um, by that is that we're providing low-barrier opioid use disorder treatment with buprenorphine, hepatitis C treatment, wound care, um, and also PrEP and PEP, as well as sort of restarting HIV and primary care meds with the goal of then getting them into more chronic care in, in a healthcare system, maybe outside of NIRI, after they feel 
comfortable with the healthcare system at large and comfortable adhering and taking their medications. Mm. So my my position really went from clinical director to medical director of this drug user health cl- clinic at Nairi. Great. And so it sounds like very quickly you realized that the health needs of this participant population was so much greater than what the original health hub or health services was set up to achieve. Correct. Um, they did a lot of test HIV hep C testing. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did a lot of referrals for care. And certainly they even assisted with referrals with um, sometimes um, transportation incentives, meaning metro cards or peers to help people mm-hmm. um, navigate the healthcare system. But even with these extra interventions, it was still hard to refer people from a very safe drop-in center to the larger healthcare system to access a myriad of healthcare needs that this community had. Mm. And so there was a dearth of healthcare, I think, being obtained by these participants and of which the on-site clinic is hopefully closing that gap. Next, listen as Christine shares what a typical day looks like at the Nairi Clinic, where she and other staff deliver healthcare right in the middle of the drop-in center. A typical day, so we have doctors coming from Montefiore four days a week, some of them half days. So it depends, like if it's a clinic day, um, I mostly focus on just making sure the clinic is running smoothly. I know, you know, I try and track down folks that hang out in the drop-in center. If they have prescription refills, like Suboxone refills, they need to see the doctor to get, you know, hep C labs ordered and drawn. We sort of try and keep tabs on folks because, you know, they don't always have a good handle on, you know, when they need to follow up. Mm -hmm. So usually before the doc comes in, I'll try and like look for people that need to be seen, remind them, try and get them on the list, you know, prepare them for those appointments and then get them in to see the doc. And then um, me and usually Franklin, who's the clinic coordinator, will you know, see them afterwards for, after they see the doctor for, you know, if they need labs, if they need education afterwards, um, prescription refills, um, kind of follow appointments, things like that. But then it can be anything like that would be a really normal day. And then there's just like, you know, explosions and fires that go off in the drop-in center. So one thing that's special about the clinic is we're doing healthcare right in the center of the drop-in center. So mm. folks are coming in to use the bathroom, you know, doing whatever they may do behind closed doors, injecting whatever it is they're doing, and also going to groups and sort of just, just spending the whole day hanging out. We try and keep the clinic running smoothly while also just attending to the needs. Like there's, you know, a lot of mental health crises that happen almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, overdoses that happen in the bathrooms and, um, you know, just infected wounds and sort of just walk-in needs. We just keep all of our appointments open for walk-in mm-hmm. so that um, people can just sort of have easy access to us, which um, is is a great thing. And it's a thing we're proud of, but it's also a little bit crazy making, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. but we love it that way. So at the start of your shift, you mentioned that you sort of go looking for patients. So how does that work? Yeah, so um, most of our folks usually hang out at Nairi for the day, just kind of 
do their thing um, either at Nairi or around the corner somewhere. Um, some folks come in just for their appointments, but typically our regulars are just, you know, somewhere within the building or within a block's radius. So, um, yeah, I just ask around, you know, who's seen so-and-so and the participants are like amazing. They're like little, you know, they, they keep tabs on where everybody mm-hmm. is. So the participants are really helpful with that. Um, and it's a small little network of folks that are pretty tight knit in the community. So they usually keep tabs on each other and take mm-hmm. care of each other, which is really nice. Bring each other in when they, when they're concerned about each other, you know, to be looked at. Um, yeah which is cool. Then there's tons of folks that we never put into the electronic health record, whether that's because they don't have insurance or, mm. you know, they didn't need to see a physician. And that's like folks that just come see myself or SIN, the other RN for things like, um, you know, injection related education or um, wound care or just like, you know, any kind of just personal, you know, needs or kind of health education. Um, so I think I'd say like maybe half the folks that we see, you know, never really go into a formal EHR. And those mm-hmm. folks we just try and keep in our, you know, we'll like alert each other. Hey, look out for this person. I saw them last week. See how their wound is doing. And mm-hmm. we'll just try and keep them on our radar. So there's a lot of informal health check-ins as well. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So next, listen in as Brianna and Christine address the various challenges that their participants face when being referred to a traditional medical clinic and how this traditional medical setting is simply ill-equipped to meet their needs. Yeah, so I think it starts from having insurance, first of all. Um, and we they certainly provide uh, case management to get insurance, but that, that can mm-hmm. take a little bit of time. And so you can imagine if you make an appointment for somewhere in the near future and then the insurance doesn't get situated um, in time that they would um, not actually be able to make that appointment because the insurance wasn't Mm -hmm. gotten in time. On top of that, you can imagine that a lot of patients don't actually have the resources or money to even Mm -hmm. buy a MetroCard in order to get to the clinic. So although um, um, one a metro card does not seem expensive to a large part of the population. It is actually quite expensive for our population whose resources are real, mm-hmm. are really diminished. On top of that, um, you have to imagine that there are people who are interested in their health care. So there is a misconception that people who inject drugs are not necessarily interested in their health care. That is completely incorrect. They are very much interested in health care, very much interested in maintaining healthy lives, getting treated for hep C and getting in drug treatment. But it is complicated when the first appointment you can give them in a healthcare system is Mm -hmm. two weeks, three weeks away from their initial intent to obtain that healthcare. And so waiting that long period of time, three weeks can be a a large challenge in a person's, in a person who injects drugs life, particularly if they're homeless, don't have a cell phone um, or don't have the, the stability to, to make that appointment so far in the future. And then on top of that, there's a real small, like we all know that making an appointment um, at 3 p.m. on a certain day, even for people who have a lot of resources who are particularly organized, can be difficult. Um, never uh, mind people without resources or the, you know, the very organized lifestyle to be able to make that time frame. And so when you enter a healthcare system and you are late for an appointment, we don't really have flexibility in the larger healthcare system 
to allow people to be late or to be allow people to be, you know, to not be within this very small window in order to obtain care. And then on top of that, a lot of our patients are really dealing with multiple psychiatric conditions such as PTSD, anxiety, depression. And that can sometimes lead to um, an inability to have very good coping mechanisms. And when you enter a healthcare system, you often are, right when you enter the door, are struck with multiple barriers. So you might have to wait in a long line in order to get registered for that um, appointment. So first you're waiting in a half hour line, then you're waiting for the nurse to give, uh, take your vital signs. Then you're waiting again for a doctor to see you. And that long wait period can be very difficult for people with, um, with coping mechanisms that say aren't ideal or aren't, aren't very high. And so between getting to making the appointment, making the win- small min- window of time that the healthcare center allows, getting to the appointment, having the resources to get to that appointment, and then the sort of coping mechanisms to really deal with some of the difficulties in seeing the physician once in the system, it, it becomes very difficult for people who use drugs to obtain good health care. As Brianna explained, the barriers to linkage and engagement in medical care are plentiful. But follow along as Christine explains how clinics like Nairi seek to break down these obstacles by being as flexible as possible for the people accessing services. Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's that's the model, yeah, trying to keep it as low barrier as possible and just having, you know, if we need, also if we need to bring services outside of the clinic, just tracking people down to bring them their hep C medications. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, you and I had talked when I had done some wound care out in the field. And yeah. and we'll also get calls from the satellite sites where there's syringe distribution throughout the Bronx and other parts of Harlem where, you know, folks are just concerned about their participants that come to see them at the satellite sites, at the vans, the outreach vans. And so occasionally we'll, you know, we'll make a trip there or we'll try and get that participant down to the clinic too. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, like one of the, smallest big things to someone that I've learned is like if a medication is prescribed and they go to get their medication and the pharmacist Mm -hmm. tells them they, you know, they can't get it for whatever reason. And, um, at that point, a lot of folks just get so frustrated because they've gone through so, you know, the barriers of getting to the clinic and, you know, um, waiting and, and being seen and then going to the pharmacy. And then at that point to be told like your Medicaid shut off or whatever the problem is, you can't get your medication. People just kind of crack and lose it at that point. And so, you know, that's, 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 we learned very quickly how often that happens. And we kind of expect it now. And we just try and like deal with that as much as we can on our mm-hmm. own and double check with the pharmacy before they get there to make sure they don't, you know, get frustrated by that extra barrier. And so it's like such a small thing, but such a big thing for folks to continue engaging in care. So Brianna, do you think it's better for people who use drugs to get all of their medical care at a place like Nairi? I think that it is extremely important to allow uh, participants um, access to care, very low threshold care. So I do believe that getting multiple service, healthcare services at Nairi is an extreme advantage and is a much better way for their, this community to receive services. One of the things I didn't mention is stigma. 
So the other problem with entering the healthcare system is there is an extreme stigmatization of people who use drugs, not only from people, say, in the waiting room, meeting the community that they have to um, enter, but also then the physicians that they might, or physicians, clinicians, or nurses that they might um, encounter in the traditional healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So I think what NIRA provides is not only and re particularly reduce access to care, but then the care they receive is really destigmatized. Um, we understand that people use drugs and that that is part of some people's lifestyle and that that should not be pro um, prohibited to receiving really good quality health care. Mm. And, um, and, and allows, a, I think, a much more caring, supportive, and loving, to be frank, really loving environment to receive good health care. Um, what I will say is that I don't necessarily think that a clinic such as Nairi, such a low barrier clinic, can, can, can necessarily provide um, really in-depth, con continuous primary care. Mm -hmm. um, because we, what one of our tenets as a drug user health clinic is really to make sure that the organization, first and foremost, is a syringe exchange program. Mm -hmm. First and foremost is a harm reduction center. And we don't want it to become healthcare are us. We really want to be one of the multi-pronged um, services that this organization provides. But as such, that means I think that we have to be very um, specific about what we think we can deliver and what type of care we can deliver really well. And so when I think of primary care for this population, they all would benefit, we all would benefit um, in general from good primary care physicians. And so the way we see ourselves in terms of primary care is really getting people into our clinic, providing them with primary care such that they are comfortable speaking with a doctor taking those initial medications, really addressing any side effects they have. And once they're comfortable um, taking these medications that are really, say, long-term chronic primary care meds um, for chronic conditions, maybe then being able to transfer them mm. with a warm handoff into the larger healthcare system now that they're more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like the Nairi Drug User Health Clinic is really kind of a gateway to getting people um, interacting with medical professionals in a way and in a time frame that works for them first and foremost, rather than the needs of the healthcare system. That is exactly correct. Yes. I think that a lot of people have had such bad experiences in the traditional healthcare system that many of them just don't want to interact with healthcare at all. Mm -hmm. And so this is one way to have a really positive healthy, reinforcing relationship um, with clinicians and with healthcare that hopefully reinforce positive experiences that then they feel comfortable um, continuing care long-term. And you mentioned something earlier that touched upon this um, concept of, you know, these fundamental differences between the harm reduction and medical models. How do you understand these differences and how do you reconcile the two at the Nairi um, clinic? Is there ever tension between the two when you're implementing clinical practices? I don't think there's particularly, um, you know, tension, um, but I do think it takes a lot of work to then be able to refer them into 
this, the larger system where we feel like we're referring them to clinicians that, that are safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means having community partnerships in the larger healthcare system that we think are really well-educated um, on drug user health, um, who believe in destigmatized care. And so that means that we really have to do a good job with our healthcare partnerships to make sure that they understand who our NIRIC clients are mm-hmm. and also to make sure um, that they have a good connection back to us if they have questions. Mm-hmm. So that means being able to be available if someone in the larger healthcare system has a question, either through us as clinicians, through NIRI staff members who act as peer and care coordinator support. Um, but unfortunately, it means that we're not going to work with all community partners, mm-hmm. um, but we're going to work with community partners we, we believe are safe yeah. to, ref- to refer our patients. And Pia had mentioned that NIRI actually does a lot of training for clinicians and other medical providers on topics such as stigma-free care. Yes. Um, I think that's another great thing that the organization does. Um, they definitely go out into the community and talk to physicians about what harm reduction is. Um, even what does drug use look like mm-hmm. um, so that physicians can be better you know, educated in how to help people who use drugs um, reduce their harm. Um, and the other thing is that one of the things that I think is wonderful for our Montefiore-Nairi collaboration is that we then get to take early trainees, medical students, residents, people who are just starting their careers as clinicians, and we bring them to the Harm Reduction Center and have NIRI staff members, peers, and also people who use drugs really educate them not only on harm reduction, drug use, but also to hear their stories of how um, it has been for them interacting with clinicians mm-hmm. and the healthcare system throughout their life. Um, and so that hopefully these young trainees will move forward and go into the world um, being real champions to. Um, improve healthcare for for people who use drugs. Yeah, I can see how that would be so important. So if if you're a clinician in New York State already working in a traditional medical setting, and let's say you didn't have these exposures before, and you're obviously probably caring for people who use drugs in your daily practice already, um, how can they learn more about how to provide better care for this population? And also, how can they take advantage of the services from organizations like NIRI? Right. So I think, so there are a lot of organizations, much like this, the organization that you work with, um, where they can provide um, both in-person and online learning specifically um, about people who use drugs. And I really believe that um, clinics need to take a, uh, advantage of these opportunities, many of which are free mm-hmm. and available. And this needs to be incorporated in our medical education, in our resident education, and in our continuing education. Um, so we really need to advocate that um, substance use disorder treatment and harm reduction is incorporated in every level of medical education, including the continuing education that is required for practicing physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, the other important thing is that really clinics are pretty um, knowledgeable about resources in the community for people to, say, acquire um, stable housing Mm -hmm. or 
for women who are in abusive relationships, how they can use uh, resources in the community to help those services. We are, we're pretty good at figuring out resources for um, people with diabetes to get better nutritional aid or farmer's markets that allow um, us to use participants and patients to use food stamps to get healthy food. But what's sort of missing a, a lot of times in that resource package is, is connecting with harm reduction clinics or syringe exchange programs. And that really need, we really need to add that to the package of resources, mm -hmm. particularly, say, for our social workers that are working in our community-based clinics. So that when we refer people to social workers, this is part of the package that we're, we're presenting to patients to help them with things that may be outside direct clinical care. And we have to, as physicians, know those resources are in our community. We are lucky in New York City to have quite a number of harm reduction programs and syringe exchange programs and methadone clinics and opioid use disorder treatment programs. Um, and we need to be aware of those resources um, as we practice medicine within the larger healthcare system. And one of the great things is all of these programs, these syringe exchange programs are so open to having visitors are so open to delivering um, lectures, educational programs for, for physicians and clinicians that we really need to um, feel free to reach out to these programs and ask them to um, provide us education. They are open to coming to the physicians they are, or they're open for clinicians and staff members of the healthcare system to come to them and see what they're all about. So we need to realize that these are open opportunities. Yeah. And and it sounds like if you're if you are seeing a patient in front of you who is um, injecting drugs and maybe you don't know all that much about how to provide care for them, you can maybe in collaboration with your clinic social worker, um, refer that patient to get some more services and education at a place like Nairi. Absolutely. And even if some of the services are overlapping of what the clinic offers in terms of case management, um, it is so wonderful, I think, for someone who um, is a person who's using drugs to enter a space where they see themselves in the staff members, they mm. see themselves in the peers, in the participants. Um, I think one of the hardest thing for a person who uses drugs is that they often lose their family and support system because of drug use. Mm. And it is very hard to navigate the world in general without the without a feeling of support and love. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that we can all understand uh, going through the COVID-19 pandemic, being socially isolated from our typical support systems, that you can imagine that people who use drugs are often isolated like this, and even more so sort of quite frequently and even without these these dire circumstances. And so one of the things that I think not, it's so important to refer people to NIRI is that they can they can go to groups, they can go to educational groups, um, have C groups, they can go to support groups, they can go to case management groups, but in a really loving and nurturing environment where they feel um, honored as a human being in a way that I think can inspire people to get over um, barriers that may have been problematic for them in the future in terms of accessing care or accessing um, treatment. Yeah. In, in our last episode, when we heard from the Nairi participant, she mentioned over and over again how she really felt that Nairi had become family for her. 
um, and she did not feel close to her biological family at all. Exactly. And I think that's a very common theme. And it's one of the really important services that we offer, which is like friendship mm-hmm. and support, um, which is, I think, an underutilized intervention in the regular healthcare system. Great. So I um, also want to shift a little bit just to talk about COVID-19 pandemic and how it's impacted the organization um, and in particular, the clinic. Clinic. COVID-19. COVID-19. As the nation's eyes were on New York, New York City. COVID-19. COVID-19. It's a public health emergency not seen in a century. So I'm curious if you can share a little bit about how COVID has impacted things like hepatitis C treatment or buprenorphine access and even overdose prevention for the patients you've been seeing? So COVID-19 obviously has had a dramatic, dramatic effect on our ability to provide services at NIRI. Um, I'm sure you heard from Pia some of these uh, these problems, but I'll certainly go in in, in depth with them. Um, You know, when COVID-19 entered New York City, there was a lot of fear and there was certainly a lot of misinformation, misguidance in all aspects, Mm. I think, of how we would uh, move forward safely as a society. And so, you know, very, very early on in the pandemic, we we actually tried to keep the clinic open. Mm. And why was that? Well, we we had to immediately close the, quote, drop-in center part, because by definition, that was a large social gathering um, happening inside. But well, outpatient clinics were not being closed. And we, although our part, we were part of a harm reduction organization and part of a drop-in center, we're also a small clinic providing healthcare. And you cannot just sever ties with patients who are accessing care to your outpatient clinic. And so as other outpatient clinics remained open, we also tried to remain open. And one of the very difficult things was that the guidelines were that the patients should be wearing masks, that the providers should, you know, potentially be wearing masks. Even that was questionable. Um, that this should be, you know, there should be enough space inside. Ventilation should be good. That we should be doing COVID screenings at the door. And we attempted this, and it was so actually difficult to implement for our participants. One, there were no masks at that time. None of our participants had masks. They didn't have access to masks. They didn't have family members knitting them, you know, at home, sending them, you know, sewed masks. And there were no government provided masks at that time. On the flip side, we really had a PPE shortage for the clinicians. And it was very hard to get our clinicians' PPE, never mind the multiple NIRI staff members that weren't actually part of a larger healthcare system. How do you acquire PPE for those people, even though they need it? Plus, by nature, the drop-in center was an exceptionally small space, and so that was very difficult. We just didn't have the infrastructure to make it larger. And finally, when we asked our participants COVID-related questions like, have you had a cough or shortness of breath in the last week? Mm-hmm. Many of our patients who are homeless, have chronic smokers, emphysema, um, other health conditions answered yes to these questions right. um, because, you know, they didn't necessarily have the um, educational insight to understand sort of the, the, the kind of point of that COVID screener. And so we very quickly had realized that it was very 
difficult to implement um, these safety precautions early on in March in this clinic. And so unfortunately for the safety of the staff and clinicians and the safety of our participants, um, we did have to close. Mm -hmm. Um, What we knew though, is that we had patients on hep C treatment, on suboxone treatment, on prep treatment who were actively using drug injecting with partners and, and having, um, you know, unsafe sexual um, encounters. And so we could not, we could not, um, sabotage with those folks. Mm. And so what we did is we basically turned to telehealth. Now, it wasn't traditional telehealth because our patients don't necessarily have continuous telephone numbers that are stable. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we made a Google telephone number, placed these flyers all on the door at Nairi so that if people came to access care and the, and the doors were closed, there were flyers saying, please call this number. Um, we also put this, this number and flyer on all of the Nairi vans that remained outside and were able to um, still provide some harm reduction services. And we also tried to get the number out into the community. This number was then accessible to anyone who had a phone, who had a friend with a phone, or who was able to use a public phone. And then that phone number that actually went to four of our NIRI staff members, two nurses, a hep C care coordinator, and a peer, and they then triaged the phone calls, were able to talk to the patients, make sure they were okay, see what their needs were. And if it was a clinical need, email one of us clinicians, and then we were able to either do a refill or if we felt needed, actually call the patient to do a true telehealth visit. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, it worked out much better than we anticipated. We really kept most all, almost all of our buprenorphine patients continued on buprenorphine treatment. We were able to retain a large majority of them, the patients who were on hep C treatment, we kept engaged with them. And even we had people on bicycles bringing their next hep C medication <laughs> in front of NIRI wow. for them to continue care. Um, when we became organized, we even initiated a few people on hep C treatment who were really eager, despite this pandemic, to get cured of hep C. Mm-hmm. They felt it was a priority, despite what was going on. And mm-hmm. we were able to continue that. Um, and so I think this was really, really a, a wonderfully rewarding um, and flexible way that we were able to continue engaging um, with our patients. Hmm. Um, what they were, you know, for, we did have to close the drop-in at large for two weeks to get organized, but then it, we were able to put a van out front um, where sort of like ice cream tr- truck style, people were still able to pick up clean um, syringes and drug paraphernalia, as well as get Narcan. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really important for to continue the harm reduction services. Um, and um, and we were able to continue the clinical care. Have you seen um, clients and, and patients come to you, call, call the Google number to really try to get on buprenorphine because they haven't had consistent access to their usual um, opioid of choice? Yes, we have. Um, one of the great things is that, is that we were able, without urine toxicologies or in-person meetings, able to initiate participants on Suboxone. Mm-hmm. And so we have initiated multiple participants who were, no, were previously not in treatment on Suboxone. And I do believe that is, a, that, that, that is, that is probably a life-saving mechanism for that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that we, I, I, almost, I do wish there was more. And I think one of the 
barriers that we've had in sort of everyone being at home is um, is engaging and recruiting new people. Yeah. So, you know, we've been great at consistently engaging the people that we already had been in contact with. And that and that was even a surprise and, and, and certainly a success for us. Um, and we definitely have started people, like I said, both on hep C treatment and buprenorphine treatment, but I would have liked it to be more. But I think it's hard when you're not out in the field, mm-hmm. out in the streets, or have a drop-in center that someone can literally drop into. It, it, it was difficult to get the message out. And I think that's one of the, moving forward, I think it's one of the things we need to really think about. Um, not only when we go back in person, how to do that consistently, but to think about really new, innovative ways to reach people um, much more aggressively or, or proactively, I should say. As you can tell from listening, the clinic and its approach to patient care is about much more than just healthcare. It's about people, the connections they make with each other, often on a daily basis, and family. And COVID was really disrupting the core foundation of this community. I think people just wanted to connect and wanted some emotional support around what was going on. Um, We had a lot of people increase, sort of like folks that had been um, abstinent from like illicit opioids for a while, um, really struggled and, you know, picked up again because they just felt really isolated anxious, I think like everybody did, you know, and lost a lot of folks that they that were close to them um, to COVID or, or other reasons. Overdoses, like there was a big uptick in, in overdoses in our community. And, you know, that really, had, you know, all of those things had a big just mental health impacts and just people's like hope started to really, mm. you know, diminish. So I think yeah. a lot of folks reached out for like, and I find this true with a lot of people that seek care. It's like, you know, they were calling the line for like, um, hey, I'm, I have this thing I'm a little concerned about, but really I just want somebody to connect to and talk to and, and listen. Christine, I'm wondering if the decrease in access to syringes and other sterile injection equipment when Nairi and other syringe service programs were temporarily closed might have led to an increase in HIV and hepatitis C transmission. What have you guys seen on the ground? That's a great question. We've been, we were really worried about that too. We would try and get folks to take as much as they could when we knew we were closing. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, of course, um, I'm sure I I hadn't heard specific stories about people reusing or sharing. Um, For the most part, folks have told me they've gotten what they needed, but, um, but I'm sure that didn't reach everybody. Um, and I guess time will tell, like we're, we just started to do blood draws on site again, um, mm-hmm. towards the end of August. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know yet about how that's going to increase the numbers, but, um, luckily we were able to continue our hep C program throughout COVID, which is something we're all really proud of. It was really nice to be able to start and complete treatment despite COVID. So Brianna, I'm curious how you think we can better connect with our patients during this time of significant social isolation. I have heard about some programs sending peers out into the community with smartphones so they can find people and connect them to someone, maybe a clinician who can help re-engage them in services and treatment, maybe even start buprenorphine over the phone. Yes, exactly. And 
Um, actually, we did, we, you know, we, NIRI has gotten a small amount of funding to sort of increase our telehealth services. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of, one of, some of that funding will indeed be used for technology yeah. because it's, you really need sort of the in the moment technology to be able to have that televisit and that connection kind of right there in the moment. Um, and I, I think that's a great idea. And I think we'll we'll see how how that works. And it might be a way to move forward and get and get and get the most marginalized back back into to either harm reduction or to treatment, but certainly back into the to to being able to access services. Yeah, because it sounds like from what Pia had mentioned, people have essentially retreated even further. Um, and it's really hard to engage people who have retreated. Um, and are no longer interacting with even maybe some harm reduction organizations. Exactly. You know, everyone's supposed to be, quote, at home. Mm-hmm. And so people who are not at home, unfortunately, have really gone through police sweeps. You know, housing authority has come in and done like homeless sweeps. And so people have had to, in order to not have negative interactions with these authoritarian figures, they've had to really retreat. And so we not only do we not have the drop-in center, we don't necessarily even have the the, the sort of linkage of the word of mouth to come to us. Um, and so as we move forward, exactly, I'm trying to think how do we how do we better engage the people who are even f- pushed further into the margins, particularly if something like this happens again, mm-hmm. um, if we have a second wave. I, I think this has opened up our minds into thinking there are probably really new creative ways. Um, to reach people. Um, and I, I think we're going to have to think um, creatively how to, how to do that moving forward. Yeah. Sounds like it's been really horrific for people <laughs> on the streets. Yeah, I, I think it really has, you know. And, you know, the other thing is people can't hustle for money, you know. So most are, a lot of our participants, they don't have traditional jobs. They may ask for money on the subway, ask for money. Um, in the streets, may, 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 may do odd jobs, to be quite frank. They might rely on shoplifting. And when there's increased security at all shops mm. or most shops are closed, when social distancing prohibits, you know, your neighbor to now g- feel safe in giving you a dollar or two, or when the subway system is so low of people that you, it, it's not even worth asking for money, many of our participants just did not have the means mm-hmm. to acquire the same resources they did prior to COVID-19. And, you know, that means not eating. It means not, you know, having clothes. It means, but it also means not having money for drugs. Mm-hmm. And that actually has a very negative implication. You, you know, someone might not imagine because if you don't have money for drugs and you go through withdrawal, and you're feeling sick, then when you do acquire money for drugs, the concern is that you might not acquire that money again consistently. And so what happens is people end up overusing when they're in withdrawal. And this is why we're getting an increase in overdoses, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there's a really lack of consistent resources in order to and maintain a more stable use of drugs. Mm. And a more stable use of drugs is not a bad thing. If someone's using drugs, the, the way we want them to be able to use it is consistently and safely. And basically, COVID-19 has really sort of from every angle really made that nearly impossible. So, Brianna, I want to go back for a moment to the topic of telemedicine. 
Yeah. I know we in the medical community are still not sure of how often patients should be seen in person versus via telemedicine. Mm -hmm. And I know legislation has been introduced into Congress, the TREATS Act, which would make permanent some of the exceptions to the Ryan Haidt Act. Yep. And these exceptions have allowed clinicians to prescribe buprenorphine without an initial in-person visit during this pandemic. Right. Some clinicians might feel strongly uh, that there's still value to having in-person visits, especially when starting buprenorphine. So is it so wrong to continue pushing for these in-person visits? Well, I think that that's an extreme point of view, meaning I, I don't think anybody including our participants, are hoping that we lose the in-person visit for the rest of our lives. You know, I think what we're trying to, what we're, what we're saying is that that initial interaction, if we, if we regulate that the initial interaction must be in person, then we lose a huge portion of people who could benefit from buprenorphine treatment. And so if we, the, the goal would be to initiate people on buprenorphine treatment, keep them engaged, get them, um, get them comfortable with, with buprenorphine, and then certainly um, try to bring them in for an in-person visit. So I don't believe the in-person visit is dead. I believe the in-person visit should be used in conjunction with some of these more innovative tech telehealth technology ways to get people in. You know, as someone who treats hep C, we never, despite a lot of, you know, stigma around this, we, once pers a person starts taking hep C meds, whether they're homeless or injecting drugs, people do extremely well. The data out there show, you know, 90% cure rates, even among people who inject drugs. Mm -hmm. Where we have the problem is linkage. And linkage to me is the problem for most um, healthcare um, gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think anyone's saying we should drop the imprisonment. I think what we're saying is if we can close the gap to linkage and get people comfortable, then we can bring people in person and keep them going you know, through a continuity clinic in person. But we probably need to use multiple modalities in order to really capture the amount of people we need to capture if we truly want to reduce overdoses and other infectious consequences of injection drug use. Right. So what you're saying is it's we need to prioritize just getting people on the medication no matter um, no matter how we do it and then work on engaging them over time, probably a combination of in-person and maybe telemedicine. Exactly. And I think that that's wonderful. And I think that participants like in-person visits, you know, when when they know the physician, when they're comfortable. But it's that initial, um, you're, it's the initial engagement. It's the initial initiation that I think um, we need to be more flexible mm -hmm. about. And and if people worry about, you know, diversion because you haven't met someone in person, first of all, I think it's probably, you know. A misconception that just because we look someone in the eye versus <laughs> talk to them on the phone, right. that they're going to divert the medication less. So I think that's probably a misconception. But I also think, um, not that I think there's not benefits to in-person visits. I do, and I believe they should be incorporated when possible. But I also think that, you know, we are in a crisis in terms of the opioid epidemic, huge overdoses. I'm, and, and I think we're, you know, starting to see overdoses increasing again, you know, in COVID-19. And, and so if 
there are if there is more buprenorphine on the streets than fentanyl i'm not so concerned about that Mm. either you know if if people are mainly taking their medications but then diverting some of it much like people do with their antibiotics giving it to their aunt you know one day mm-hmm. um you know which is diversion of all medications is common among every population but if the majority of people are taking their meds and then a bit is diverted that means that that person who gets the diverted buprenorphine on the street they just got buprenorphine instead of fentanyl mm-hmm. that's a life saving public health um an intervention mm-hmm. so i really think that the, the number one goal in my opinion is really to expose more people to buprenorphine, which is a long-acting opioid causing less chaos. It's a treatment, and people can do really well and 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 not die. Um, and the more we expose people to buprenorphine, a really great treatment for opioid use disorder, I think the the more likely we will be at succeeding and ending this public health crisis. And lastly, Brianna and Christine give us a forecast of what's next for the clinic. When they will open, what will change with what they are offering, and if there are any concerns with the surge in the upcoming winter. So right now we're trying to get as people, well, we're trying to obtain flu vaccines and get as many people vaccinated for the flu as we can, as many Mm -hmm. participants and peers and staff. Um, Because, you know, there's that concern about contracting um, the flu virus with COVID. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to do as much, well, we still are struggling to obtain vaccines because we don't actually have a, we don't have a grant that, um, you know, provides for that funding. So we're working on that. Um, We're, we're almost there. Hopefully we'll get them by October and then we can start a vaccine drive, start, you know, there's a lot of myths in amongst our population with the flu vaccine. I've tried, I try every fall <laughs> to get our participants vaccinated and it's, it's tough. So I think we have to do a lot of education. Yeah. We're expecting to be, you know, fully operational in the clinic again pretty soon. Um, I'm just sort of waiting any day now on when we can start up again mm-hmm. um, for in-person medical services. Yeah, so we're really lucky. Um, the the Snyri staff have done an exceptional job of preparing to open. Um, one of the lessons learned in, you know, from sort of the beginning of the the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic was that we need to really do things organized and slowly. And so the first step is um, is opening the um, drop in part so that people can use the backyard and socially distance and get that peer support, um, have groups for education, have substance use disorder treatment groups in an outside socially distanced way, and also have access to the bathrooms and also has access to all the harm reduction services. We're going to have, we're going to do that safely. People are going to have wear masks. I believe now, six months later, our participants are much more comfortable with wearing masks. They have access to masks and they understand um, the concept of social distancing in a way that we didn't six months ago. And so we're going to first open those services for a couple of weeks. Once that is going well and smoothly, we are then going to bring back um, the clinic where we are offering, you know, we have three times a week, we will have a nurse and a clinician there to um, treat people in person, to draw bloods. Um, you know, that has been another big barrier, you know, not being able to draw blood on people for things mm. like you know, prep and hep C that that's been very difficult. So it'll be Mm -hmm. exciting to be able to do that. So we know we're doing things safely. 
Um, but what won't change is we will not get rid of the, the Google telehealth line because prior to that, you know, NIRI participants really had no way of getting a hold of anybody. You know, we don't have a front desk staff, mm -hmm. right? And so there wasn't a great sort of administrative number to call, a messaging service to call. And so this is a way we believe that if there's a NIRI participant who we're engaged with, who's on the other side of town, who's having a problem or a side effect or an issue, they can use a public phone, call into our Google line now at any time and be able to get a hold of one of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that will be something that we keep that really is one of the um, advantages that will have come out of COVID-19, sort of using telehealth more intermittently, um, using it when it's necessary um, to be able to expand care and to be able to sort of deliver um, services in, in real time, closer to real time. This episode was recorded in September 2020, and the Nairi Clinic has since reopened and is seeing patients again. I would like to thank both Dr. Brianna Norton and Christine Fitzsimmons for sharing this information with us, and I would like to thank you, the listener, for staying with us on this journey. Any Positive Change, a Drug User Health podcast, is part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative, or CEI, and we are funded by the New York State AIDS Institute to provide progressive continuing medical education for clinicians to enhance their capacity to deliver high quality healthcare services and to improve patient health outcomes. CEI offers free CE accredited trainings, conferences, intensive preceptorships, clinical technical assistance, and tools on HIV primary care and prevention, sexual health, and hepatitis C treatment and drug user health. Check out all CEI has to offer at ceitraining.org.